Hello friends, this is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6, The Chad Williams Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat. For life. Former U.S. Navy SEAL, frequent guest on major news networks as an expert correspondent, author of the best-selling book, Seal of God, keynote speaker to Fortune 100 companies, and a man on fire for God that travels the world teaching people servant leadership, teamwork, and overcoming adversity through personal discipline and goal setting, ladies and gentlemen, it is my true honor to introduce you to my friend, Chad Williams. Chad, thank you so much for being here today. I'm pumped to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh man, it's my pleasure. So for a backstory so the audience knows how we met, it's actually kind of interesting. My daughter at some point picked up the book Seal of God, and she is not a reader. So not only was it crazy that she picked up a book, but that she picked up this book, I'm not even sure where she got it, and then she devoured it in just a couple nights. So I thought, huh, I might want to check this book out. Well, fast forward a few weeks, and then I'm calling my buddy Eric up to see if he wants to come over for the fights. And he's like, man, I can't tonight. I'm going out to dinner with Chad Williams. And I'm like, wait, Chad Williams? He's like, yeah, former Navy SEAL. I'm like, yeah, my daughter just read his book. He's like, cool, why don't you come out to dinner with us? I'm like, no, man, I don't want to impose. And he's like, no, seriously, come on, there's other guys coming too. So we all go out to dinner, talking to Chad, getting to know him and his buddies, laughing, hearing the funny stories, and we just had a good time. And then later that night, Chad and the guys came back to our house. We all watched the fights, had a ton in common, and the relationship just grew from there. But that night, Chad told us a hilarious story that I'm going to call Choking People Out for Jesus. So, Chad, can you please share that story with our listeners to start the show? Yeah. All right. Well, for those that aren't really familiar with, you know, my background. So, first of all, just so you know, I'm a, I'm a former U.S. Navy SEAL. And so we have this mutual friend by the name of Eric. We'll just keep everything first name basis, Eric. And back in the past, just as I had gotten out of the military, I was a part of this ministry called Living Waters. And one of the things that we would do was we would go to uh, these different states and put on conferences. And so one of the conferences was called a deeper conference. It's all about you know getting into a deeper relationship with God, being fired up to go do uh, stuff like evangelism. And I think that by the end of the event, everyone was pretty fired up to go do so. In fact, they heard about this beer fest that was going on uh, in Kentucky, and they wanted to go out there and share the gospel with people. And I'm thinking, based off of my past experience, that is not a good place to go to. I know you think that as you share the gospel with people, it will just sober them up. But, you know, more often than not, common sense, you know, will tell you this isn't a, this isn't a place that you should be. Well, they weren't backing down. This group of people, they want to go. And amongst them, you know, was one of the conference speakers by the name of Eric, our friend. And so I decide I'm going to go with them. I'm going to go with them, not because I want to take part in any of this, but because I'm concerned for their safety. They got to have somebody there 
that's watching their six. I got that situational awareness. I'll look out for them. Well, we make this big walk across the bridge. We finally get there to the beer fest, and it is just like I thought it would be. I mean, everything you picture Sodom and Gomorrah to be, that's what was going on. Just complete debauchery, people that were inebriated and out of their minds. And I'm just thinking, this is not a good scene to be at. Well, I'm just waiting for these guys to get going. They want to evangelize. Go for it. Evangelize. They want to do some open-air preaching. Go do some open-air preaching. Well, they're all kind of standing around twiddling their thumbs, and nobody wants to actually pony up and be the first one to do it. And so they're all kind of looking at each other like, who's going to go first? Who's going to go first? And they look at me, and they ask me like, hey, would you kick it off? And I'm like, dude, I didn't even want to be here right now. Now you guys are asking me to go up first. And I was like, all right, fine, I'll crack this shell. And so I'm hopping up on a park bench. And if you can imagine, these streets are shut down. There's no traffic. It's all just people on foot, foot traffic. And they have these easy ups that are set up all over the place to sell more beer, to you know, sell snacks and, and water. And I've got an easy up like right next to me at this bench with a flood lamp that was like pointed right in my eyes. I don't know why the flood lamp wasn't pointed like towards the easy up or towards people's speeds, but it was pointed up in the air, right into my eyes. It's nighttime. People are wasted. And here I go. I'm open air preaching. I'm trying to tell the drunk crowd about Jesus. And I'm bringing up some of the controversial stuff though. First, you know, in order for them to really appreciate the savior, they got to have an appreciation for how serious their sin is. Uh, well, at some point while this is all going on and I'm thinking I'm about to get a beer bottle to the face, knock my teeth out, I'm not even going <laughs> to see this thing coming, you know, because I got this light in my eyes and this big crowd of people that are there kind of balking at me, yelling things here and there. Eric comes running up to me and he goes, yo, Chad, man, let me get your wallet. And I'm thinking, what does he want my wallet for? And then I realize, <laughs> oh, Eric realizes that I'm parched. That my throat is very dry right now. And so out of the kindness of his heart, he is going to go buy me a water with my own money from my wallet right on. And so now my open air preaching is taking the pivot. I'm switching from sin to the Savior. I'm talking about the good news of the gospel, what Jesus did for us at the cross. And then somewhere along the way, I hear yelling coming from the front lines of this crowd of people. And I'm trying to like look through the light to see what's going on because it's a familiar voice. It's another friend of ours uh, by the name of Mark. And so I'm looking at and, Mark. And just now. to paint the just to paint the picture, this wasn't like ten people either. This was a large group of people, correct? Thousands of people. Thousands. Sea okay. of people. It's a <laughs> beer fest, and everyone is on foot, just wasted, inebriated, right? Gotcha. And so huge crowd of people just in the immediate area alone. There's probably at least a couple hundred people that are like involved listening to, you know, what is going on and heckling me. And so I look at this friend of mine, Marky, screaming, Chad, Chad, and I'm trying to see what's going on. Is somebody attacking him? And I don't see that. I see him grabbing onto somebody that's trying to get away from him. And I'm thinking, Mark, what are you doing? You're the Christian. You're not supposed to be assaulting people right now. <laughs> and so he's got this guy by his fingertips as the guy's just trying to yank and pull away. The guy gets away and he takes off. And so then Mark looks over at me. We've got eye contact now. And I'm like, what's up, man? He goes, that guy has your military ID, your SEAL ID. And so, man, I just blank out and I go after this guy down off that bench through the crowd. 
and I'm on him. And we get into it, right? And long story short, I wind up putting him in a rear naked chokehold. And <laughs> I'm telling him, dude, drop my ID. Because he's got my military ID. He's got my SEAL team badge in his hand. And I was just fresh out of the Navy. I think that the terminal leave was like just wrapping up. And so he's not dropping it. And so now he's got these friends that come running up on me. And so I got their friend by his neck and these two guys now they're yelling and barking and talking real big like they're going to, you know, kick my teeth in. And so I kind of realized like, okay, these guys are all barking, no bite. You know, they would have come in after me by now. And so I decide I need to create some space. I need to get my ID out of this guy's hand. And so I just backpedal with him as fast as I can. I run back about 20 feet. And I just start putting on the anaconda squeeze, right? I'm just like, go to sleep. And as I'm squeezing him and slight, like slowly letting him down, the ID just drops from his hand, hits the pavement. I gently put him down on the ground and I grab my ID. Well, now I look up and I've got this huge, huge beer fest crowd all around me. This was a fight. And this is happening in front of hundreds of drunk people. And so you can imagine there's like that circle. We're in the middle of this circle. It's the arena. It's the pit. And this guy is just coming back to consciousness as he's getting up to his feet. And there's this very strange silence. I mean, such a loud place, so much ambient noise and chatter going on. And for a moment, you could just hear a needle drop in that place as they're looking to see what happens next. And so to break the silence, one guy just yells out, yeah choking people out for jesus (laughs) and everyone repeats the chant choking people out for jesus and i'm just like oh no you know i'm in just such a weird place right now and uh, next thing you know the police are coming they got the yellow jackets and i don't even want to deal with it so i just i ran i took off (laughs) and i ended up linking up with the guys and i was like what was going on i thought you're gonna get me a water as it turns out they were arguing with some guy in the crowd over whether or not I really was a Navy SEAL. And so Eric knew that I had a SEAL team ID inside of my wallet still. And so he decided to march on over, get my wallet to go and display it to this guy to show him our friend really is a SEAL. Check this out. And that guy snatched it. He snatched it and he took off with it. And you already heard how the rest of that all played out. But uh, yeah, that's a, you know, that's a funny story from the past that involves our, our mutual friend, Eric, out there. So who's this Eric Chad and I keep speaking about? It's actually Eric Hoven of creationtoday.org. Creationtoday.org is a ministry website that answers all questions about creation, the origin of man, the how did the universe start, and what happens when we die. And what I think is the best part of creation today is it's not just a website. It's a website that brings together hundreds of authors, hundreds of scientists, hundreds of speakers and they have these blogs that you can read and learn from and news articles are scientifically proven videos and podcasts that are entertaining as well as educational and e-courses that are very inexpensive but can really help you grow so creationtoday.org is an awesome resource for someone looking to understand life what's their purpose why am i here And how do I get saved? Or what is saved? For the answer to these questions and more, check out creationtoday.org. And if you're a Christian, while you're there, check out the Why I Bought Your Coffee track. 
The Why I Bought Your Coffee track has taken the globe by storm. It's a simple, easy, inexpensive, and effective way to reach the lost and show the love of Christ in action. So creationtoday.org, Why I Bought Your Coffee track, you will not be disappointed. A special thanks to our sponsor, creationtoday.org, and an even bigger special thanks to you, the listener. We really appreciate you being here today. Hope this episode is helping you grow. Now let's get back to Chad and his remarkable story. Anyone who just listened heard you're sold out for Christ. You also have great judgment and mad jujitsu skills. <laughs> but, but how did this happen? Let's back it up. Let's start wherever you want to start in your past and move through. Sure. I think uh, maybe a good place to start would be my last operation out in Iraq with my team. And I think that it will cast uh, a good shadow on some of the earlier events uh, of my life and, and how I wound up in the place that I was at on that last operation. And so out in Iraq, I was out there with SEAL Team 7. We were given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and roadside bombs like IEDs, which for those that don't know, just stands for Improvised Explosive Device. And we're working with a group called the ISOF. That's the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. And one of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so we figure, you know, the best way to do that is to not only train them on base, but actually go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. And if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good because we've bagged and gagged some bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And we were coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And we weren't really sure if the ice off was ready for us to pass that baton off to them. And so we decided, how about for this final operation, we'll try and make it this graduation operation. We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. And so they start from scratch. The first thing they need is some intel. So they're hitting the streets and they find this source that tells them about a man that's this Iraqi policeman by day, but at night back home, he's actually one of these bomb makers that we're looking for. And so the ISOF comes up with this whole plan, how they want to approach this guy's house, get in, grab him, extract, it all checks out. It looks pretty good. You know, these bomb makers, uh, they do not rate very high on, you know, the morality scale. You know, oftentimes they're not very motivated to actually be the one to strap it on themselves. And they have such a difficult time finding somebody to raise a hand and volunteer for the job uh, that oftentimes they can't find anyone. And in one instance over there, just to really capture how depraved and wicked their minds operate, what they did is they couldn't find anyone. So they took two mentally handicapped women and strapped these vests onto them and pushed them off into a crowded marketplace watching from a distance like cowards as they set it off with the remote killing these women and, and obviously so many more. Just kind of gives you an idea of the type of characters that we're up against. But the ISOF, they've got this whole plan. And they mention one other thing as they want to go out and get this guy. They kind of had a complaint. They're saying, look, we realize that we, the ISOF, you know, we tend to get shot at more than SEALs do on operations. And we think we figure it out. Why? And so we're kind of scratching our heads now wondering like, okay, what do you think it is? You got us, you know, we'll, we'll bite. <laughs> and they say, it's the color of your uniforms. We're like, what? That sounds ridiculous. The color of our uniforms. 
You think it comes down to the mere color of a like not the way we shoot, move, communicate, not the way that we perform our tactics, our proficiency. You think it's a uniform, and they're not changing. You know, they're holding firm. They're convinced it's the uniforms, and so they're saying, "Look, we're wondering if you'd be willing for this last operation." to maybe take off your American colored uniforms. And they want us to take the American paint off our vehicles too and paint on our colors and put our uniforms on. So, all right, let's get this straight. You want us to strip our paint off, paint up our vehicles to blend in with you, put on your uniforms to look more like you so that we get at, get shot at more with you. And they're like, yeah, it's like, fine. It makes total you know sense. What? Total sense. It, yeah. It's it's just like Lance Armstrong. It's not about the bike, you know. Like, hey, it's not about the uniform, okay? And so we get their uniforms on. And the funny thing is, is you know, for your listeners, you know, what you got to understand is, you know, I got a dark complexion, and when I start growing out a little facial hair, oh man, you know. And so I got an Iraqi uniform on, dark complexion, little <laughs> facial hair, and the guys on my team are looking at me with a big smile on their face. I'm like, what's up? And they're like, hey, Williams you're really starting to blend in with those guys now, aren't you? <laughs> Looking like, all right, I guess I am. And so here we are. It's the final op. We finally get to go home after all this, right? And so I'm sitting there in the Humvee. I'm actually standing up in the turret, and I'm behind the 50 caliber machine gun. And for those of you that are listening and maybe don't know what the 50 cal is, let's just say that's a weapon that could really reach out and touch somebody. I've got my night vision goggles on. I'm looking through my green little world and just kind of going over this mental inventory as I'm thinking about all the things I know about this night that are clicking off in my mind. I know my weapon is headspace and time. That means ready to go. I know where this guy lives, how we're going to get in and grab him, extract. But one unique thing I know about this operation that really does make it different than every other operation, I can't help but to think about it. It's the final operation, which also means I know. Just a matter of days from now, I'll be back in my hometown, Southern California, surfing in the ocean. But here's what none of us really knew about that night was that we were actually being set up the entire time to get thrown into the absolute worst circumstances we'd been in on this entire deployment as we're being set up on an ambush. And now we find ourselves engaging in this gun battle for our lives. And it truly was the team's ability to you know, shoot, move, communicate, and do what we do best as Navy SEALs that ultimately led to the possibility of me still being in existence, you know, to this day. And before I, I, I touch on how that all played out, like I said, I think that that would be a good place to spotlight things. And I, I want to look at the shadow, though, in the past of like, how did I even get to that place? And so for me, fresh out of high school, attending just this local community college, I didn't have any real big plans. And you know that saying, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it. And that is so true. And unfortunately, I was aiming at nothing. And I find myself failing virtually all my classes. And it's my own fault it's because I have no aim. I'm not even pulling the trigger. I'm not showing up. I'm ditching, hanging out with friends, going surfing, partying. You know, But eventually, it's time to face the music. And so I remember pulling into that school parking lot, showing up maybe once or twice out of the week to just show my face at these classes. It just really hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm there in my truck and the the thought just enters my mind. Like, wow, I'm really turning out to be a loser. I mean, the kind of guy that 
no young man wants to be. And so I'm brainstorming now. I'm thinking, how do I get out of this situation? I don't want to be in the spot that I'm in right now. And necessity is the mother of all invention. The greater the need, the greater the result. I really felt like my back was up against the wall and I wanted out of this spot that I was in. And so now finally, I'm turning the gears in my brain, perhaps for the first time, like really trying to capture the vision. Like, what do I want to do with my life? And so I'm brainstorming, I'm thinking, and I I get this first idea that I really still to this day think it would have not been a bad idea. I think I know what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to go become an Alaskan crab fisherman because I'm watching this <laughs> catch. I'm thinking by far one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. There's some bracken rights and honor in that. And I almost settled on that idea as I'm parked now in the parking lot at school about to go take finals. I didn't study for the other idea enters my mind. Like, wait, no, why can't I go join the military? And not just that, I want to be a part of the most elite. I want to go through that most difficult, grueling military training. I know what I want to be. I want to be a Navy SEAL. And so as I thought about it, you know, I got a target in my sights now. I got something in the crosshairs. It's something I'm passionate about. You know what? I want to pull the trigger. Who's going to stop me? And so I just make up my mind. That's what I do with my life. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And so I figure here's my first order of business. If I'm going to be this frogman, you know, well, then my first order of business is this. I do not need to go to school anymore. And so I started my truck up and took (laughs) off out of that school parking lot. And I really just dove all in. I started preparing. It literally became all I ever thought about. All I ever worked on was I want to become a Navy SEAL. It was my obsession. And that really is one of the keys, I think, right there. If you really want to hit the target that's in your crosshairs, you got to have an obsession for it. And so first of all, I guess here's a principle for everyone. And it's a fundamental of shooting. It has everything to do with goal setting as well, because shooting is all about hitting a target, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to get something in your sights. You're hitting a target. And so in shooting, we have this principle. It's called aim small, miss small. And the idea behind that isn't small thinking. You know, the idea behind that is the more particular I could get about aiming at whatever it is that's in my crosshairs, the better shot I have of hitting it. If I'm just aiming generally, at an enemy insurgent that's trying to flank my team and I pull that trigger to hit him somewhere, like he's just, he's my target and I miss, what happens? Well, I don't get a hit. I miss. I'm off target. But what if I say, you know what? I'm not just trying to hit him somewhere. I'm going to aim small. If I aim small, my miss will be small as well. I'm not just trying to hit him somewhere. What I'm looking for is I'm trying to find a button on his t-shirt. I'm aiming small. And maybe I don't hit that button, but guess what? The miss will be small as well. And where will that miss find itself? Most likely somewhere on target. I'm going to hit him. So it's aim small, miss small. So this is true. It's a fundamental of shooting taught to us as Navy SEALs. And it also applies to hitting targets in life, goal setting. If you just aim generally at this idea of like, I don't like how my life is and I want to go achieve something great. Well, that's pretty general. What are the chances you're actually going to hit that if you just go and pull the trigger? It's kind of unlikely, right? And so you have to get more particular, you know, bring it more into focus. What is it that you're aiming at? Really try and scope it down. 
And so I started with that broad idea, go do something significant. Don't be a loser, right? Leave your mark in life. And I had certain ideas like maybe go, you know, be a Alaskan crowd fisherman. I don't know, join the military. And I really started focusing in, not just join the military. I want to be a part of the most elite. I want to go through that most difficult, grueling military training. I know what I want to be. I want to be a Navy SEAL. And not just that, I want to be a top performer. Like I want to be one of the guys that's competitive in class, like not just making the bare minimum requirements. You know, I want to be in the front of the pack. And so Mm -hmm. aim small, miss small. That gives you your best shot at, at actually hitting the target, hitting the goal, whatever it is that you're going after. But then my next question is this, what type of person is actually successful? When they actually do have quite the target that they've acquired in their sights, I would say it leads right into that whole passion aspect of it. you got to be obsessed. It's what we call in the SEAL teams a common man with uncommon desire to succeed. The key word there being desire. And another unique word to point out about that, it's the common man. It's not just the extraordinary stud that shows up to SEAL training that seemed like he was just born and bred to be a Navy SEAL, blessed with the right DNA that has all the muscles and stamina. That's really not what it's all about. We all have our ideas in our heads of like who's going to make it and who's not. But that's all outward appearance stuff. And all that outward appearance stuff will seriously betray you because it's really not about the muscles, man. It's about the mind. It's the mindset. A good example would be like the first day of training. These instructors come walking in the room. We got over 170 of us that are in there. And he's scanning the room and and he says to us all, he's looking for a response. How many of you are willing to die before you quit? And so the whole class is pounding their chest saying, yeah!" you know, that's our yes. And he goes, great. Well, this is what I want you to do right now. Why don't you take a mental picture of the person on your left and on your right? In fact, if you got a guy standing in front of you and behind you right now, do the same thing with those as well. So I'm looking around the room and I do have these four guys I'm taking this mental picture of. And it says, chances are, if you're still standing here for graduation day, that means each of these guys you just took a little mental picture of, likely they didn't make it through. Do you really think you're the one? And I honestly remember looking around the room and my thought was this, like, where is it going to come from? I know I'm not going to quit, but I don't see any quit in any of these guys either. We've already gone through some pre-seal training together where we've gotten beat down by these instructors. We have suffered together and I have not seen any quit in any of these guys. And so I know I'm not going to quit. I'll die before I quit. But these guys are saying the exact same thing I'm saying. They say it with their lips and it seems like they're saying it with the same intent that I'm saying it. So I'm just thinking, what is it going to take? Like how much deeper down the rabbit hole do we have to go before people start quitting? And I got to find some guys that I think will quit. Like I got to start picking some guys off. As I'm scanning the room, I'm looking around. I'm not finding people that I think will quit. I'm seeing guys I think that are going to make it, especially this one guy. His name was Barth. So as I look over at Barth, I'm like, there's not one of the guys that's going to quit. That's one of the guys that's definitely going to make it because Barth was, I'll say this, this, he was the stud of the class. He was that guy that was just blessed with that right kind of DNA. He had the genetic superiority that produced the muscles, the stamina to where there is never a question over who's going to get first place on anything we ever did. As far <laughs> as I was concerned and many others, we knew it was Barth. Like he's always so far ahead on the runs, so far ahead on the swims that 
the question is who's grabbing second place. We know who's grabbing first place. And so I'm looking at him thinking, well, there's one of the guys that's definitely going to be there for graduation day. And now I'm thinking, what am I doing, man? I'm not supposed to be finding people that I think are going to make it. I got to find guys that I think will quit. So I'm looking around the room a little bit more. And how could I forget as I saw him, this guy, Alex Gagne. Now, Alex Gagne was the exact antithesis of Barth. He was the ugly duckling of the class. I mean, he was always in what we call the goon squad on the runs, meaning he was in the very back and he got a lot of special extra attention from the instructors. So not only is this guy going to quit, he's the locker room talk. Like he's the locker room talk. He's going to be the first guy to quit. It's an insult that he even made it through the bare minimum requirements to be in the same space as us in this place. So I'm thinking in my head, at least I got that resolved. <laughs> you know, I couldn't find a bunch of guys that I thought would quit, but you know, I got the first one picked out in my mind. I'm going to watch him go. Well, the crazy thing is that by the time we got to the most difficult portion of SEAL training, which is called Hell Week, you know, who was amongst the first to ring that bell and quit? It wasn't this guy, Alex Kanye. Amongst the first to quit was this guy, Barth, the stud of the class, the guy blessed with the, the genetics, the DNA, the muscle, the stamina. And the crazy thing is who was one of the guys that ultimately made it all the way through that pipeline and became a Navy SEAL? The ugly duckling of the class, the guy that everybody wrote off, the guy that everyone said, not only is he going to quit, he's the locker room talk, man. That's, that's the first guy's going to quit right there, Alex Kanye. And so what do we learn from this? I think that what we learn, what's demonstrated here is that this principle, common man, it's the common man, but with uncommon desire to succeed. Remember, we have this idea about the extraordinary ones are the ones that go and accomplish these extraordinary things. But in SEAL training, it is not so. It's the common man that shows up, but with uncommon desire to succeed. And I think that that should be very good news to all of us. Because the reality is, is that there are certain people in life that are dealt a better deck of cards than you and I. There are certain people that you know, were raised in the right pedigree and given the right upbringing and maybe got more privileges and a better education than others, right? And so what happens is, is that these people that weren't blessed those things, uh, they just kind of write themselves off. They say, well, you know, I, I can never go on and achieve greatness. And they kind of start kicking themselves and they go into this self-pity party because, you know, I wasn't given the same privileges as that guy over there. I wasn't given the same education. I don't come from that same background, that same pedigree. Well, yeah, you weren't. And that's life. You know, not everyone's going to be dealt the, the same deck of cards, right? The, the chips fall as they may. That's life. Yeah, certain people are going to be more privileged than you. But guess what? That's not the stuff that really counts in determining success. The stuff that really counts is not your DNA. Your DNA does not determine your destiny. What really counts is not the DNA. We could call it the desire, that uncommon desire to succeed. And so maybe you can't control whether or not you have the DNA that produces the muscles of a guy like Barth, but the quitting mindset. Or, you know, do you have the die before you quit mentality, that common man with uncommon desire to succeed of a guy like Alex Gagne, who would die before he quit? He made it all the way to the very end. 
And so you got your target in sight. You got your aim small, miss small. And I asked, who is the type of person that actually succeeds when it comes time to pull that trigger? I say it's that common man, or you can even say for all those listening, common woman with uncommon desire to succeed. And so I had that. I got that uncommon desire, right? But actually speak louder than words. I want this so bad. And so I'm doing all the preparation I can to get ready. And uh, along the way, I got to break the news to my dad what had been going on that year at school. You know, that I'm not really passing any of these classes. I haven't been showing up. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm failing. And so <laughs> I kind of, what? It sounds real fun. Right. And, uh, you know, imagine being dad then. So he's kind of like, okay. And I told him there was some good news. <laughs> he's like, what's the good news? And I said, well, I'm going to go become a Navy SEAL. And so again, I got to put myself in my dad's shoes here. Here's your son who uh, hasn't really sticked with a lot of the things he started, right? I would get pretty obsessed with something like baseball and do pretty good at it, get on the all-star team for a while, but then get burned out. Or I'd get really obsessed with skateboarding. I'd get pretty good at it. I was sponsored by Van Shoes. I did some competing, you know, but I got burned out on it. You know, now I'm attending a local community college, but I'm burned out on it. And so I'm, I'm dropping out. I'm not doing it anymore. And so, But now I'm telling you I want to be a Navy SEAL. And so my dad just trying to be the voice of reason and talk some sense into me and giving me a good motivational speech. He's like, hey, just so you know, joining the military is not like any of these things you've ever done in the past, son. It's not like playing ball, skateboarding, going to a local community college. He says, if you join the military and then find out, oh, this isn't for you. Or suppose you quit and you don't make it through SEAL training. Just to be clear, you will still be in the military. And you're probably going to get a job like chipping paint off some boat in Japan. Well, motivational words to my ears right there. You know, I'm determined. I am not going to be that man that's chipping paint off some boat in Japan. And I know actions speak louder than words. So I'm just, I'm preparing. I'm doing all this running, swimming. I'm going out, you know, doing the pull-ups and push-ups and sit-ups. And as days go by, my dad invites me inside and he says, okay, so you really want to do this, huh? You want to be a SEAL? Like, yeah, dad, I want to be a SEAL. He goes, great. I set up a workout for you with the Navy SEAL. And I'm looking over <laughs> at the computer. She's pointing to this email. And it's just this little one-liner. It just says in this email, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? And I'm like, <laughs> play? Like, dad. You don't know any Navy SEALs. You met some guy off the internet that says it was to play with me, and you're arranging this right now? <laughs> and he's just kind of looking at me. He's like, he's a SEAL. I'm like, you can't trust everything someone tells you on the web, Dad. And he's just, he's a SEAL. I'm like, all right, fine. I'll go meet up with this guy. And so as it turns out, there's more of a conversation he had with him on the phone prior to that email that I had no clue about at the time. And I didn't get the backstory till months later, but I'll give it to all your listeners up front. So on the phone, prior to that email, he's on the phone with this SEAL and he tells him, hey, look, my son wants to be a Navy SEAL, but here's the deal. He has no idea what he's signing up for. Like he doesn't know what he's getting involved in. And so I'm wondering if you could do me a really big favor. I need you to meet up with my son and what I'm asking you to do, I want you to crush him. <laughs> like just bury him, beat this desire of becoming a SEAL out of him would you that's what i was just gonna say yep beat him right beat it right out of him and uh, the guy didn't give an answer on the phone he thought about it for a while 
So his answer came through in that email. That was the code on can Chad come out and play tomorrow? I'm thinking weird, you know, to say something like that, you know, (laughs) and here I go. I find myself meeting up with this Navy SEAL in a beach parking lot by the name of Scott Helvenston. And I'll, I'll never forget as he spotted me from across the parking lot, pointed at me. He's got his glasses, sunglasses on. He's like, you Chad? I'm looking over at him and kind of trembling inside, said, yes, sir. He goes, all right, Bubba, come on over here. And so I was Bubba from that point forward. And he's got me dropped down doing some push-ups and sit-ups and pull-ups. And he had another guy there that was a Marine, but he's re-enlisting into the Navy because he's an aspiring SEAL as well. And so I'm kind of sizing myself up. I, I don't really remember being around any military prior to that, uh, other than retired guys. And so I'm hanging in there. I'm doing everything he's requiring of me to do. And my confidence starts to kind of build up. In fact, I'm kind of out doing this guy that's a Marine. I'm doing a couple extra pull-ups, a few extra push-ups. And so now, you know, my ego is kind of starting to build. And I don't want to interrupt your story, but at this point, you're 18 years old. And Scott was a fit man, but he was not a giant. Correct. Like describe Scott's stature physically. Scott was about 165 pounds of just twisted steel and sex appeal. I mean, the guy was literally <laughs> a model. And, you know, he looked like he was about 200 pounds of muscle, you know, but he just had that look. He had that physique. He's a world champion panathlete. He was the fastest Navy SEAL on the SEAL training obstacle course. He's the uh, youngest guy to ever make it through SEAL training. He completed SEAL training at 17 years old. That's only possible because he grew up in so many different foster homes. And so the military made a very special exception to take him at a very early age. He's also the only man to beat the beast on this TV program that was on in the early 2000s called Man vs. Beast, where he raced a chimpanzee through an obstacle course and pulled ahead of that monkey on the monkey bars. (laughs) So you can imagine. This was an extraordinary human. You're working out with him. Your dad's asked for the elite freakish human to beat you down (laughs) literally the seal of seals and he set the bar he was the first seal that i ever met he's everything that you would think a seal would be and every seal i ever met after him uh couldn't hold a candle next to him yep and he wasn't six oh yeah but he wasn't six foot eight he wasn't a gorilla this just guy maximized every inch of his body that's right yeah he's about my height which is like about five seven yeah, and just phenomenal athlete. I couldn't beat him at anything we ever did. I never saw anyone even come close. I mean, he was that guy that every run, swim, whatever we did, he could just sit there and do dead hang pull-ups up to 50, and it seemed like it wasn't even phasing him yet. He would drop off that bar. He always had more. Yeah, he was the guy everybody want, every guy wanted to be and every girl wanted to be with, right? Just yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's Scott Helvenston for sure. <laughs> yeah, I just want the listeners to hear this because – like you said earlier, it's really important for people to understand we're all built a certain way. And right. we all have abilities given to us and they can all be developed. Now, there are certain things we can't change, but we can't make excuses for who we are because God has a potential of who we can become. And even if you're five, seven, or six, seven, or four, seven, you max out what you have and be the best you can be. That's right. Yeah. So many of us are like 
eagles with our wings clipped. We never really soar quite as high as we could have, you know? And so we got to make sure not to, not to be the one to clip our own wings. No, that's, it totally plays into what we're talking about. I didn't want to interrupt your story, but I remember reading about Scott and I wanted people to understand before you go on what you're dealing with and what you're about to explain. Right. So we go from doing calisthenics to going for a run, except Scott says, here's the deal. You know, Seth, the Marine, he goes, why don't you lead the way for the first 15 minutes? Uh, You guys go down that dirt trail away from the ocean out into the wetlands. And then 15 minutes into the run, Bubba, which was me, he goes, why don't you go ahead and take over? And you set the pace. And so we take off on this run. And the whole plan was Scott was going to catch up with us. He just had some gear that he needed to clean up back at the truck. And so he's got this pull-up bar that's hanging there and some weights that he had out and some mats that we were using to do you know, some of the calisthenics on. So I don't think anything of it. So we're going for this run. And this guy, Seth, he is a big brute force Marine. I mean, the kind of guy that could probably just plow a door down by swinging a hammer fist at it, you know, which is great, you know, for really taking somebody on face to face. But, you know, when it comes to running at a fast pace, that's not really the body type for that. And at the time, I was just a wiry kid. You know, I remember I was skateboarding all the time. I was sponsored by Vans. I wasn't a runner. In fact, I didn't even have running shoes. I think I was running in my Caballero 5s. Steve Caballero. <laughs> um, I didn't even know what a difference in running shoes would make. Uh, and so I'm just running in my skate shoes. And it's 15 minutes in the run. It's time for me to take over. And up until this point, I mean, I could practically fall asleep at the pace we're running at. And so 15 minutes into it, it's time to go. And so I take off and I'm just burning this guy, leaving him in the background. And as I'm running and he's just disappearing into, you know, the rear view mirror of time, I keep running a little bit more, start to think now that I'm ahead of this Marine, where it's this Navy SEAL. And I'm running and running and I'm not seeing anyone behind me anymore. And I don't know where I'm supposed to take us. What's the final destination here? The only instruction I have is go run down that dirt trail away from the wet away from the ocean, out into the wetlands. And so I'm going off into the unknown, looking back, where's this seal? I'm not seeing him, so I start getting this idea in my head. I'm like, maybe, maybe I'm too fast for that Navy SEAL. He can't even catch up with me on this run. Very foolish of me to think that. Because I look over my shoulder again, and it is like a scene out of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Terminator 2, where that bad guy, they call him the T-1000, could like morph into all these different characters. At one point, he morphs into a police officer with like knife hands, and he's literally chasing down a vehicle. Well, that's the Navy SEAL, like this T-1000, coming down this trail with knife hands for me. And I am running as fast as I can. I don't know if your listeners know this feeling ever, but I mean, I'm running so fast, I can't even spit at the wrong moment because that will be the thing that throws off my whole breathing rhythm. Even though I'm going as fast as I humanly can, this guy is just closing in. He closes that gap. He gets right up to where I am. And then he passes me. And then I never saw what was coming next. As he got just enough space ahead of me to really plant his feet down and turn around on a dime, he just pivots. He is at a dead stop. I'm coming in full speed. And he stops me with his fist going into my stomach. I mean, I just got impaled, clothesline, feet off the ground. I remember that feeling still 
of just time stopping as I see sky. My back hasn't even hit the ground yet. And I've got that wind knocked out of me. And then the back hits the ground. There's poof of dirt up all around me from this trail. And then he's jumping on top of me like a wild animal, ragdolling me. I mean, he's got me by my shirt. And I hear the threads of my shirt ripping. He's screaming. I, I feel spit coming out of his mouth, hitting me in the face, in the cheek, the forehead. And here's my thoughts. Honestly, I'm thinking some guy, my dad bit off the internet. Now he's <laughs> caught me on the ground in the wetlands. I'm thinking child murder, <laughs> man. Like this is happening. And so as he's screaming in my face, then I hear these words. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL, you better stay three paces behind me. And there was something about that moment, those words right there, that reality just really, it clicked into gear. I realized if I quit right now, like I'll forever be a quitter. This is, this is for real right now. And the way I respond in the following moment is going to affect the trajectory of the rest of my life. And so I just reaffirmed this initial attitude that I started with, like die before you quit. And so he gets up, he says it one more time. He says three paces and he turns, he does not look back. He just takes off. He is showing no mercy. And I'm doing everything I can to stay on his heels. I have never suffered like that in a workout ever again. I'm talking all of SEAL training that I'd ever gone through. I can look back and say that was by far the most difficult singular workout. I should call it a beatdown session. This encounter that I had with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston, miles down the trail, he finally circles up. I got noises coming out of me in those teenage years that have never been repeated again as I'm just trying to catch my breath. <laughs> and he's looking at me almost like he wants to fight me. I mean, he's got just these piercing eyes. I don't know what's going on. The guy just flattened me out out there in the wetlands, like physically assaulted me. And I don't know what he's going to do next, but he's looking like he wants to fight. And so I'm having this dialogue with myself. Like I'm just looking down at the ground, trying not to set this guy off. And I'm just kind of looking down, thinking, all right, Chad, all right, what did you get yourself into here? No direct eye contact with that guy. He's a psycho. (laughs) You know, just don't look him in the eyes. Use your peripherals, man. Just use your peripherals. And as I'm looking around and not looking at him, he breaks this really awkward tension by asking me a simple question. He just says, hey, if we would have got another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? And it just came out of me. I just told him, Scott, I'll die before I quit. And I just see this big demeanor change come over him. I mean, he goes from this stern look like he looks like he wants to fight me to this big smile on his face like he wants to do it again. And so he asked me, he says, great. He goes, do you want to meet up again for the workout tomorrow? And I'm honestly thinking like, are we going to talk about it at all? I'm thinking like, (laughs) what was a flashback on the trail over there? And of course, he isn't going to let me know. And so I don't find out till months later that that was all some big setup. And so (laughs) I find out months later as I'm sitting down with him, my dad over lunch, that he was on the phone with my dad after that and told him, look, I I know what you wanted me to do. And I gave it a go, but I think your son might have what it takes to make it. I'd like to start working with him. And so from that day forward, I began to meet up with this Navy SEAL, Scott Helvenston. And uh, thankfully, it was no longer this beatdown session. And I was ready for that if it had to be that, you know, but it wasn't that anymore. It became more of a building up. In fact, I moved on in life from just being Bubba to eventually he would start calling me Junior. You know, he really took me under his wing as uh, he's mentoring me and just really investing into me, becoming this sort of 
like second father, you know, figure. And he taught me something about leadership there. It was something that, you know, would be the pattern of leadership in the SEAL teams. You know, he made a point that, you know, he says, you know, when we're on that trail and and I saw some some pride, some arrogance in you and, and I wanted to beat that out of you. And the lesson was, he says, in the SEAL teams, it's not how it is. You know, there's humility. It's humbly we serve. And what he was getting at was, you know, something that most of the world is familiar with, coined as uh, servant leadership. But really, what is servant leadership when you really come down to it? I, I think one of the best ways to understand what servant leadership is to, is to first contrast it with its opposite. And so the opposite of a servant leader is what? proud, prideful, arrogant leader. And unfortunately, I'd say there's more of these out there than there are the other. And so a proud, arrogant leader that suddenly has the keys, they're the boss, they dish out the shots and people listen to them. Why? Well, only because they have to, only because that guy outranks me, only because that's the manager, that's the boss, that's the CEO. And if I don't listen, if I don't do what they want me to do, you know, I could get written up or I could, you know, maybe not be collecting a paycheck at the end of the month. Maybe I'll get fired. And so what happens is, is that that character, you know, they dish out the orders and people listen to them as they're barking the orders out only because they have to listen. And it's unfortunate, you know, that leaders, that there are leaders like this and they don't start off that way. You know, usually they start off from a place of humble beginnings, but somehow along the way, as they rise in position, what creeps in with that position is the pitfalls of pride. And so that's a a prideful, arrogant leader. I think that you kind of nailed that one. All right. We all know what that's like. We've all worked with somebody or for somebody, you know, like that. They're like smoke to the eyes. What's a servant leader? A servant leader great example uh, would be to go back 2,000 years ago. And whether you love this man or hate him, there's one thing you cannot deny about Jesus of Nazareth. He knew how to lead people. And he is what we would call a servant leader. In fact, he's very well known for saying, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And so this is purely just a historical analysis right now. I'm not adding any religion or any theological implications. Let's just look at the man. Let's look at his life, the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, this man that says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And one of the takeaways is at one point, most are familiar with that the time that he got on his hands and knees and he washed his disciples, we can call his subordinates, feet. He did this for them as the leader. And what came out of that? What came out of that is, you know, here he is, the disciples, they're thinking, this is our leader. We should be doing this for him. He shouldn't be doing these types of things for us. And what ultimately came out of that is something that every leader desperately wants. And it's something money cannot buy. It's loyalty. Mm-hmm. So much loyalty that when he would later have a task for them. You know, here, I want you to go and spread this message. I want you to risk your lives in the process. Unlike someone that serves a prideful, arrogant leader that only does enough to get by, only enough to still collect that paycheck at the end of the day, you'll always give a leader like that your minimum. A servant Mm -hmm. leader, 
when he asks you to do something, you're already thinking about how could I double down on that? How can I exceed what he's asking of me? How can I go the extra mile for him? Like, you just want me to do that? Man, I'm going to blow your world. I'm going to do so much more than that because you have loyalty towards them. And so that's the juxtapose there, you know, between the servant leader and the prideful, arrogant leader. And so Scott is really just impressing upon me very early on that this is what it is in the SEAL teams, Junior. It's, it's the team first, and then your buddy, and then me. The I will always come last. I'm not looking over my own back as I'm entering into a house. I'm covering my buddy's back. And I know that even though I'm covering his back, I don't have to look over my back because he's covering my back. And so it creates this loyalty, this family dynamic towards one another, and it creates this tight bond. And that's really, I think, the glue that holds together teamwork. Like everyone's so interested in the SEAL teams and the fraternity of the teams and the teamwork and everything like that. It's like, really, it's, it's hardly team. It's family. That's really what it is. Like mm-hmm. if you want true teamwork to, teamwork to synthesize, it comes through everyone practicing servant leadership, esteeming the needs of others as greater than their own. But that has to trickle down from the top. And so it starts with the top. It really flips the, the pyramid upside down. And so it's all about the example that you give. And watch out, it creates quite the culture when everyone's practicing such a thing. It's loyalty. It's the family deal, you know? And so, man, Scott is just, he's the family deal. He's like I said, like a second father. That's how I looked at him. And so he's preparing me, investing into me, washing my feet as it were, right? I mean, he's just, he's helping Mm -hmm. me out and he got me ready. And so I got to a point where I I sign up and I got a date, it's set. I'm going to be shipping off a boot camp. And Scott takes this opportunity, as he put it, to go overseas again. I remember we were just chilling after a workout one day in the pool and, you know, he's telling me about this opportunity, about how he could go and do this thing with this contracting company. And it's only a couple months long. It's, it's high risk, but it's high reward. He can make a good amount of money in a very short amount of time, or he could just kind of keep doing what he's doing. And it could take him the better part of the year to kind of get back on his feet from some setbacks. And so he was kind of casting it my way. I don't know why he was asking my opinion, but he's like, what do you think I should do? And so I was for it. I was like, I think you should do it, Scott. You know, in, in my eyes, he's invincible. You know, he's going to kill so many bad guys and he's going to come back with the stories about it, you know? And so he decides to do it. And so he, he gets on the phone with me and the turnaround was pretty quick. Even though I had already signed up for the Navy, he was going to leave before I'm even leaving for boot camp. And so on the phone, he's telling me, all right, Junior, I'm about to go do this thing. He's referring to going to Iraq. And he says, I just want you to know something, though, that I've never told anybody I've ever trained before. And so I completely understand that what is going to come next out of his mouth is really going to be of huge value to me. And so he says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And man. You don't know how bad I needed to hear that from him because mm-hmm. I knew that I was going to make it through training. And he would often talk about how you never know who's going to make it through training. That you could pick out the guy like Bard and think he's going to make it. You could pick out the guy like Alex Gagne and think he's not going to make it. He says, you're always surprised. You never know who's going to make it. And so I hear him. I'm listening. 
but I kind of really want to hear it come out of his mouth, but I know you're going to make it. And he just wouldn't yeah. say that. He would never, he would never go all in on me. Like, you know, and so now I'm hearing it from him. Junior, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And so to hear those words from my mentor, that meant the world to me. I could not wait for my opportunity to prove him right and to get started on this thing that I always wanted to do. And so, you know, we say our goodbyes. He's just reminding me of the timeline, how he's going to be gone for just a couple months. And uh, that's about the same amount of time that, you know, I'd be in Navy boot camp. And so, you know, we're saying our goodbyes and getting off the phone. All right, Scott, I'll, I'll see you when you get back. And so now he's gone. And I just have a handful of days before I actually get going off to boot camp. And I figure, you know, if I can't work out with my mentor in person, what's the next best thing? Well, that would be to, you know, just do some of these workouts we've done together in the past. And so and I'm speaking, up just, just to get on this, speaking of timeline, from when you met Scott to this point, how long was that? Uh, a Six little months? over a year. A little okay. over a year. Yeah. So you got I, a I probably, lot of time I probably together. signed up about maybe four or five months into knowing Scott. And once I signed up, it was what's called the DEP program, the delayed entrance program. We didn't know that there was actually going to be such a delay. It was a, a seven-month waiting list, basically, to get in, to go. And so I'm just burning off that waiting list time. And so I'm just days away from going now, though. Scott's doing his thing. And I'm waking up one day and going to do a workout and the TV's on. And as I look over at the TV, I can't believe what I see because what I see is a picture of Scott smiling. And I'm like, what? Like wiping my eyes? Like what is Scott doing on TV? And I'm just brainstorming here. I'm thinking he's supposed to be in Iraq, but he's on TV all the time. He's a phenomenal athlete. He's not only on TV for that man versus beast, like he's on TV for all kinds of other things. They're always bringing him on these shows. And so I just and think, this is, before, on? This, is 2000, this is 2003, 2004, before smartphones were really in everybody's hand. We were still on Blackberry days. So it's not like you woke up to notifications, right? Not at all. In fact, I still have the phone to this day. Yeah. And it was one of those really old school, old school phones where, yeah, if you want to send a text message to somebody, you have to hit like seven, like three times to get a K or whatever, you know, like. Yeah, my point at this was just the fact that when you wake up, this was a primary means of communication, still the television. So if right. this is on TV, this is a big deal. That's right. And so smiling image of Scott. It's March 14, 2004. I'm sorry, March 31st, 2004. And I look at the bottom of the screen. And that's what I, I see Scott's birth date followed by a dash, March 31st, 2004. And I'm staring at that and I'm trying to process in my mind the logical meaning of that. And it just isn't making sense to me. And before I could even process like what that means, it switches from this video, from this still image of Scott to video. And now I'm looking at this video where... I was just seeing a smiling image and now I'm looking at video footage of a vehicle burning in the background, which was the vehicle Scott was in, in Fallujah, Iraq. And then it cuts to all these different scenes, very similar to what groups like ISIS do today, where it's never enough to just behead some people or set a pilot on fire. They like to videotape everything they're doing. Well, this group of insurgents that had ambushed 
the vehicle that Scott was in, along with three other Americans, they were videotaping everything that they did. And so I'm watching now this montage of different clips of the things that they did to Scott and the three others as they ripped their lifeless bodies out of the vehicles. And this angry Iraqi mob just surrounds the bodies with sticks and rods and they're beating and wailing away, doing everything they can to mutilate their bodies. And then they find rope and they wrap it around their legs and they go dragging them through the streets of Fallujah. Uh, like it's a celebration, these dirt streets, as if they're walking the parade. And then, you know, these pathetic people, they get tired and they can't drag their bodies anymore. So they hook them up to vehicles and they go dragging the bodies through the streets of Fallujah behind these vehicles. They arrive at the Euphrates River Bridge, string them upside down, suspended in the air, and then set their bodies on fire. And they're chanting over and over in Arabic. Looking into a camera, they're chanting, Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. And I think pretty needless to say, I'll never have the words to describe just what, like, not even just that moment. It's like all the surrounding days were like, you know, it's one of those situations where, like, it just it radically changes you as a human being big time. You know, you don't go forward the same person from there. And I heard those words loud and clear. Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. And so amongst the myriad of emotions, I mean, I, I literally went through it all. You know, a big part of me also wanted revenge. You know, I became determined that, you know, I'm not going to like back away from doing this. No one's forcing me to still go in. You know, there actually is like an option out, but I wasn't going to take that. You know, I became determined that I want to do this, but I want to do it for so much more. I want to do this in honor and memory of my mentor. Like I, I want, I want revenge as well. And so I wrote his name on the inside of my hat after I made it to SEAL training as a constant reminder and a motivation to make it through. I had Scott Helvenston. So every time things got difficult, when I really needed to dig deep, I literally could just look up and to the right and I see Scott Helvenston. And I'm telling you, you'd have to kill me before I'd ever quit on that name right there. And so I enter into SEAL training. It's called BUDS, stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. It's uh, where the, the rubber meets the road. It's by far it's not, the most it's difficult. Not, it's not talking about flowers, the buds of the flowers, how beautiful <laughs> and gentle it is. You know, I never even thought about it that way. I can't associate <laughs> you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, if anyone ever says, you know, the bud of a flower, I'm just forgetting about flowers and going in my mind to buds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being so, totally sarcastic because it's, uh, it's not it's, even so close to basic, It's basic underwater demolition seal training, and there's really not much basic about it, you know. <laughs> the numbers speak for themselves. You know, out of 173 guys that were in my class by graduation day, there's only 13 of that original class number still standing there. And, uh, man, that graduation day, boy, were those instructors right. When they say, look left, look right, look at the guy in front of you and behind you, they were more than right. You know, the attrition rate in that class was insane. In fact, they stopped doing, we had a wintertime hell week. They stopped doing February hell weeks for like half a decade, if not longer, like after us. They just didn't do them anymore because of just how devastating it was, you know, to the class. Which, looking back on it, I'm happy I got that experience. I'm happy that I got a class 
that was so gnarly in Hell Week that they're like, <laughs> we got to tone this down. You know, there's some bragging rights right there, right? As opposed to being in a summertime class where you got pool temperature water, you know, it's like, yeah, man, we, we got the worst the ocean had to offer. It's the worst month out of the year. And I think one of the, the second or third week of February is traditionally the coldest week out of the year. So you got the coldest month and within the coldest weeks right there. Hey, man, that's something to be proud of. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of those things looking back on it. And I think that we need to caution everybody here in terms of like whatever it is that you are setting your sights on, whatever it is that's in your crosshairs, don't make that the thing that is your reason for living. So while it does take a pretty healthy obsession and passion and desire to accomplish whatever it is you're going after, just make sure it's not the preeminent, most important thing in your life because watch out. Because now you're basing your life, your identity, your existence off of something that can all be taken away from you. Or at least it could all fall apart. And that is true on so many different levels in terms of whatever your occupation is, in terms of whatever it is you do as a hobby, whoever you are in front of your friends. It's true when it comes to your family. Like, don't put that type of responsibility or pressure on a spouse or on your children while it's i mean family man i'll die for my family right but you you Mm got to be careful you can't put that type of pressure on your wife or on your kids because they can't live up to that for you they will let you down at some point and so when you are let down what does that mean does your whole world come crashing down and so we got to be careful about wherever it is that we place like our ultimate value. And for me, I placed my ultimate value in that identity of becoming a SEAL. And I got it. And you know what I learned very soon after? I went from the highest high and it didn't take more than 24 hours before I started experiencing what I felt like was some of the lowest lows. And I couldn't wrap my mind around why at the time, but everything did just seem to go on this downward trend. I felt like my life was circling a drain from that point forward. And I couldn't wrap my mind around why at the time. I mean, I just achieved what I thought was going to deliver the ultimate. I did this in honor and memory of my mentor. This is that thing in that parking lot in the junior college where I'm thinking this would really turn my life around. And here I am, I'm there. And I didn't enjoy it for more than 24 hours before I felt like I was the same person. I always was, but far worse. I now have no hope. Because there's something about hope. What is hope? You know, it's been said it's hope could be described in the very word hope as an acronym. It's holding on with patient expectation. It's how you get to tomorrow. It's the belief that I have an expectation. I'll hold on because when I get to that place, like there'll be rest. When I get to that place, there'll be deliverance. There'll be fulfillment. So I could make it through the valley right now because eventually I'm going to get to that peak. And that, that peak is what it's all about. It's what life is, is worth living for. Well, I got, I got to my peak and I quickly realized it didn't deliver like I thought it would, uh, but far worse than the previous state that I was in, at least before I had hope. 
at least before, I thought, I really don't like my life and how it is. But when I become a Navy SEAL, that's when everything will really come together. That's when I'll suddenly become, I don't know, like enlightened, that I'll have some type of fulfillment, this sense of accomplishment, this, like, I could live off of that for the rest of my life. And I quickly learned the truth of these words spoken by a Christian philosopher, Ravi Zacharias. He says, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets him down. What he's referring to right there, something I believe every listener is familiar with, at least to some degree, is that human condition. That whole idea the grass is always greener on the other side, not really uh, content, satisfied, fulfilled, where we're at. What do you want? I just want a little bit more. And so we buy into this belief that if I could just get to this goal over here, this status change over there, maybe a certain salary, or maybe what you feel like you need is a serious relationship. You got that. And so maybe what we need in our life is some kids. And so you just keep moving the bar, buying into this belief that if I could just get to that achievement, whatever that is, my target and my crosshairs here, if I could just get to that place, I'll be satisfied. And what happens is you get to that place and you are satisfied but not for very long. The satisfaction doesn't last. What happens is you you got to eat up that thing that you were desiring. You were full for a little bit, but you get hungry all over again. So what do you do? You don't panic here. You raise the bar. You just go, you know what? The reason this didn't deliver the way that I expected it to is because I didn't go for something big enough. And so if I really want it to be like a lasting success and fulfillment, I got to raise that bar. I got to go to the next rung of the ladder. So that's what you do. Now you're you're raising your sights. You're looking a little higher and now you've got that new thing in your crosshairs and you are you are thirsting after it. You want it so bad. You got the passion. You got the desire. And you get there and you drink it up and you're satisfied just like you thought you would be. But what happens? It's like a vicious cycle. You just get hungry and thirsty all over again. And seemingly there just is no end. But that's the catch. And that is the whole point to that quote is that there is an end point. See, the big question is this. What happens when you finally arrive at a place? Where you no longer, like all the previous times before, can say, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just raise the bar. I'll go to that next rung of the ladder. No, you can't do that this time. Why? Because you're at the last rung of the ladder. You can't say, well, I'll just go up from here. Because you're at the peak of the mountain. There's no more elevation to climb. And yet you're still hungry and thirsty for more but far worse than all the other times before because there is no next. This is something that everyone listening sees all the time going on in the lives of the people that you watch, the idols, the rock stars, the movie stars, the professional athletes that have climbed to the top and they have everything that this world has to offer. They've got all the fame. They got all the fortune. And what do you see going on in their lives? Their lives are falling apart. They're destroying their own lives with drugs and alcohol. They have dream jobs getting to go to parts unknown and get paid for it. He's taking his own life. And we are just like, why? I don't get it. Just, I need an answer. Why? I mean, don't you realize you have everything everyone else could ever dream of? Don't you know what people would trade to be in your shoes? And yet they're just throwing it all away, destroying it. Well, maybe... Maybe to be in their shoes and have everything that the world has to offer isn't really all that it's cracked up to be. And we hate to believe that, 
You know, that's a belief that we don't want to buy into. We're in America, the pursuit of happiness, that you could achieve your dreams and your goals and, and have this fulfillment and happiness. You know, but these people experience, I think, what Jesus says. He says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but in the end loses his soul? Think about that. What mm -hmm. is it to you? If you literally gain all you could ever dream of going after in the world, you got the whole world, but your soul is messed up, man. It's not right with its creator. And so I guess you could say for me, becoming a seal, that was my version of gaining the whole world. The problem was my soul was not oriented correctly at that time. I didn't have a right relationship with the creator. And I'll just tell everyone listening right now that if uh, you don't have peace with God, don't expect to have any peace while you're living here on earth. And so I have no peace. I'm on a team, but I'm, you know, I'm just kind of putting on a front in front of everybody, you know, and this isn't an experience that is unique only to me. I've talked to so many other SEALs that have had the same experience. And I've seen so many other professional like athletes talk about this same mm -hmm. experience. So I'm just kind of putting on a front though. All right. I got my uh, family and friends that go ahead. Oh, no, as I say, I think all of our listeners can even relate to this because obviously you have 1% of 1% that's in the elite status you're in at the top. But even in the quote unquote average person's life, they have goals they've set up and they're like, this will make me happy. This will bring me fulfillment. This will bring me peace. And then they hit it. And they're either not even at that point focused on that goal anymore. They already moved on to the next goal. Or they get there and they have this that depression, that letdown, that what did I really work for? You know, I just worked. I personally believe midlife crises is, is because our system is so broken. We born, we go to school as a child and we're taught go eight to three. Then when you're done, come home and do four hours of homework. So we're basically programming our kids to be inefficient workaholics. Then they get out of school and they go right to college where not everybody's made for college. And they get right out of college. They have kids, they get jobs, they get bills. So they go to work. And by the time they get to slow down, they're 45, 50 years old. And they're looking back in my life. Well, what did I just really live for? So I think everybody listening, this is great advice you're giving. We can all connect with this, maybe to not the same degree, but it's that same foundational principle. So thank you for really expounding on this. Yeah, the way I look at it is, you know, my dad has always been great at giving really good advice. And for so many years, I just didn't listen to it. Yeah, well, you were a teenager, on. right? Right. <laughs> Eventually, I kind of caught on and realized, you know, all those things that he kind of predicted or, you know, told me like certain routes to go or not go. He ended up being right a lot of those times. And unfortunately, I didn't just listen. I didn't take the advice or the shortcut, I did it my own way. I did it the hard way. And eventually I began to learn, like, how about I just take the advice, take the <laughs> shortcut in life, right? And so that's one way to think about this is just don't learn this the hard way. Take the shortcut, right? You'll be farther ahead in the end than so many other people. And so it's an opportunity to stand on my shoulders and other shoulders right now to get a little extra ahead in life. And so 
I think that Jesus put it really well when he says, look, it, there's so many things that the world has to worry about and seek after. Uh, but he says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about the things that you eat, the things that you all wear. He says, look, at the whole world has these worries. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So in other words, like C.S. Lewis, he, he says, look, if you just aim at earthly success and pleasure, it's likely that you'll miss. But if your aim instead is at heaven, right, seeking the righteousness of, of God, a right relationship with your creator, you'll, you'll hit and you get earth thrown in. Earth is like the bonus then, right? And so if you aim at earth, you'll miss. If you aim at heaven, you'll hit and you get earth thrown in. And so I'm on this team and I'm putting on the front, you know, like I really got it together when I don't. And it just leads to a desire to not feel the way that I felt. And so what would get me to escape that feeling sometimes was just focusing on the work. But if we weren't working, sometimes it's just working out really hard. And other times the escape would be drinking and going out partying and cutting loose with the guys. But it seemed like that one, even though I knew it backfired, I would take the backfire. You know, it's like a night of drinking. Yeah, that might kind of wipe your brain for a little while. It might make you numb to things, but it's going to come with a hangover the next day. And it just messes you up chemically, you know, moving forward. But, you know, that's what I, I kind of found, found myself in. It's this vicious cycle of going out, drinking, cutting loose with the guys, doing a lot of foolish stuff, being really risky, you know, having people that care about me confronting me, saying like, what are you doing, man? You're the seal. You know, but you're out there acting like a fool and you're going to get yourself killed or somebody else killed. And I didn't have a lot of remorse. All I really looked forward to is maybe deploying, which it was, I was like a year away from doing. You know, I get put on a team that, you know, we had a lot of work up to do before we got to go deploy. And so, you know, my everything came to a head one night where I went out drinking with some of the guys and blacked out and needed to get 26 stitches on my knuckles for punching the thing. I don't even remember. And I wish I could tell you that I had remorse at that point, but that still wasn't the rock bottom. It wasn't the wake up call for me. But I found myself agreeing to go to this event just to get the family off my back, you know, because they're like really concerned about me. And so I was like, oh, I'll just suffer through this thing. It's an evening event where this guy, Greg Laurie, is going to be speaking. And, you know, I could punch my card in at church. I hadn't been in a while. And, you know, it'll be over before I even really want to start my night. I'm not even going to be drinking until 10 or 11, anyways. And so, I agree to go. Let's go. And so we go and he's speaking that night and he brings up this story about this soldier by the name of Naaman. And uh, Naaman is this incredible commander. He's a great success in battle. He's got this entourage of men that highly respect him. He's highly regarded. Naaman's this mighty man of valor. Sounds like the guy could have been a seal had there been such a thing during his time. Mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And leprosy during the time of Naaman uh, was a skin disease that meant certain death. So, so much for all that success, you know, so much for this outward man, this persona, when in reality, what's the truth? What's really going on underneath that leprosy? I mean, underneath that armor, what's really going on underneath all that clothing is leprosy. He's falling apart. He's a dead man walking. Well, quickly, I relate with that man right there because I felt like 
you know, I am this certain man on the outside in front of my family members, in front of, you know, coworkers and friends, I'm wearing the armor of Naaman. But in reality, underneath it all, I feel like I'm deteriorating. I'm falling apart. I feel like this leper. I feel like this dead man walking. So I find myself relating with Naaman. And I'm sure many people listening right now can find themselves relating with that person. Because really, when you think about it, who are you? Like, who are you on the outside in front of coworkers and family members and friends? What kind of armor are you putting on when in reality, there's some other issues going on underneath it all? And so I'm listening to Naaman's story. I'm looking for what's going on here. And so Naaman, no doubt about it, he's tried everything he could possibly try to rid himself of this leprosy, but this is the impossible. In fact, Jesus, looking back, says nobody during the time of Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. But he hears about this man that serves the God of Israel, and he's told, like, he will heal you of your leprosy. And so he decides, like, I got to give this a try. I'm going to give it a go. And so in order for him to go, it's a 150-mile trip. And he's going to be bringing horses and chariots, and it's enemy-occupied territory that he's going into, and he needs approval from his king. And so his king tells him, you know what, I'm going to send a letter with you on your behalf. Like, you absolutely have my approval. And so he's going with this letter, and he's bringing this equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver, apparel. He's prepared to pay this guy off, do whatever you got to do, just give me my life back. And so he gets all the way there, 150-mile trip, gets there to the door, and the guy won't even come to the door. He winds up sending a servant to the door to relay this message. He just gets told, if you go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, when you come up, your flesh will be restored to you. You will be clean. But Naaman's response, he was furious. I mean, he just came all this way with all of his men, and this guy doesn't even give him the courtesy of a face-to-face conversation. And then he basically tells him, go try and wash it off. And so he's so mad, he turns and he's leaving in a rage and he's venting out loud, saying exactly what his expectation was, that he thought this guy was going to come out, wave his hand over the place, call in the name of the Lord, his God, basically put on some big, great show and strike this leprosy away. But instead he gets treated like a normal and it infuriates him. So as he's leaving in this rage, and if he continues to leave and never turns around, he will die. This will be the end of him. He'll die in his leprosy. Here's the cool part is that he was surrounded by some men that really care about him. And they're looking out for him, and they're they're pleading with him. They're saying, Naaman, come on. Look, you know if this guy would have came out and gave you some big, great thing to do, you would have done it. And so he thinks about it, and he decides, okay, I'll do it. And he's about to do what I think is by far the most difficult thing for any one of us to do. Uh, He is about to humble himself. He is about to take that pride, that ego, and just strip it away and show some humility. As he strips away that armor, he's stripping away what needed to go all along the pride. And he makes his way out into that water, dipping himself seven times. I think really getting it now that It's not the water that's going to fix me. It's if I'm faithful, the God of Israel will be faithful and he will do all the heavy lifting. And so he dips himself these seven times, comes up seventh time in the literal language. And the Hebrew says that he had brand new skin like that of a baby. And so I find myself just captivated, like watching a movie. And then it shifts. It goes from from Naaman to it gets personal. 
you know, just as God provide a way out for Naaman, he's provide a way out for you and I as well. But first we have to understand our condition. So remember who Naaman was. He had this sort of persona. He had this armor that he weared. It's all a facade underneath it all. He's deteriorating. He's falling apart. He's a dead man walking. What kind of facade are you putting on? What kind of exterior do you walk around with when in reality, underneath it all, you have a disease that is destroying you? Just like Naaman was this dead man walking, our disease is not leprosy, it's S-I-N positive, it's sin. And the wages of sin is death. And there's nothing we can do to cleanse ourselves of our own sin. We can't wash it off, just like Naaman couldn't wash off his leprosy. And we're desperate. But guess what? God provided a way out. And it doesn't come in the form of dipping ourselves into the Jordan River. What happened was this. God dipped his son, that's Jesus, down into the world on a rescue mission. You could call it a hostage rescue mission. And he lived this life, this life that was perfect. It was a life that you and I have not and could not ever live if we're being honest. So the leprosy, remember, is a picture of something. What's it a picture of? It's a picture of our sin. Spiritually speaking, if we're honest, we're all spotted and blotted and blemished with sin. But Jesus, he lived the perfect life. He was spotless. He was without any blemish. And then he goes to the cross. Why did he go to the cross? He went to the cross to trade skin with you and I. That's the picture right there. He traded skin with you and I. He took our leprosy, our sin, as it were, upon himself. And he died in our place and paid that penalty so that we could be lavish with God's grace and his mercy. Not only did he step in to pay the penalty of our sin in full at the cross, but God rose him again from the dead three days later, showing that he has not only power over sin, but he has power over death, that not even the grave can hold him down. And this is the hope of Christianity. That though a man shall die, he shall live. That my life could literally fall apart. You could take everything away from me here on earth. My existence is not based upon things that can be taken away from me or destroyed. It's based upon something that cannot be taken or destroyed. It's everlasting life. I can overcome that grave. So it's not about your best life now here on earth. In fact, the moment you decide you're going to become a Christian in this life, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus says. The Bible also says all those that desire to live a godly life will endure persecution. And so you don't become a Christian to get a cushy life. You know, once you become a Christian, Christianity is not a playground. It's a battleground. Like Mm -hmm. now life just got more complex. Why? Well, because before... You were in a place where the enemy never saw you as a threat. And so he wasn't probably taking too many pop shots at you. But suddenly now that you've traded teams or you've put on the armor of God and you show that you're a willing and able soldier, that you actually want to engage in the spiritual battle that's going on right now, well, you're going to the front lines. And that's where things get messy. So a lot of people that never experience any kind of resistance or difficulty with their Christianity oftentimes is because they're no threat to the enemy. You know, they're, they're not really doing anything for God. Uh, And so how do you receive this gift that Jesus offers? 
you know, just like Naaman, he needed to dip himself seven times. It wasn't the act of dipping himself seven times. It wasn't like the work that earned him, you know, a healing. What it was is that he showed his faithfulness to God. And if he was faithful, if he had that faith that God, the God of Israel would come through, then God did the work. He did all the heavy lifting, you know, by cleansing him of that leprosy in a similar way. We are to declare our faith in Jesus as a certain person, as our Savior, that we trust God, you know, that you are the one that can save me from my sin and you are my Lord. And so as Savior and Lord, he saved you from sin and Lord, here's a good way to think about Lord. He's like the assault leader. He's the shot caller. He's the one that informs you which direction to go, how you ought to shoot, move, and communicate You know, with the rest of the team. That's who the Lord is here on earth. God informs you how you ought to look at things and think about things and how you ought to actually do life. And we got quite the manual, the, quite the standard operating procedure manual, quite the tactics manual. Uh, it's called the Bible. You know, which ironically, this isn't what it actually means, but a good acronym for Bible would be basic instructions before leaving earth. You could, you can never outdo those instructions. It'll leave you fully equipped and ready for every good work. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you a question? Please. We have, we have listeners now who believe in God. We have listeners who don't. And hopefully by this point, they're seeing that the truths you're bringing out, the lessons, aim small, miss small. <clears throat> you need to be a common man with uncommon desires uh, to serve humbly, to have that hope, you know, the holding on with patient expectation. Those are universal truths. So for someone listening now who doesn't believe God, who doesn't believe the Bible, and you said, what is the truth? When we become a Christian, Life can get more complicated than it usually does. Why would someone want to become a Christian if life's just going to get harder? Because of hope. You're holding on with patient expectation. So even the Bible acknowledges that sin is enjoyable for a season. It's fun for a season. You want to run around, go get drunk? Sure, that's fun for a little while. You want to go run around and you know, hop in bed with a bunch of other people. Sure, it's fun for a little while, but it it comes with consequences on the other side, right? It comes with the hangover. And in this case, there's an eternal hangover that's waiting on the other end. And so it's enjoyable for a little bit to play around in the world. Why become a Christian was answered. And when I said, this is what it is to be a Christian, the hope of overcoming the grave. And so, so many people have it wrong because they think that Christianity, that you become a Christian because you don't like the way that your life is going right now, and you just want to turn a new leaf. You need to get a a new start, uh, another take at life, and now you're really hoping that what God will do, if you just get God on your side, that Mm -hmm. he'll begin to really help your startup get going, and he'll breathe life into all your dreams. So many people turn their back on Christianity after trying it out because they tried it out for the wrong reasons. They thought that Christianity, becoming a Christian, was about your best life now. 
Mm-hmm. But if you just look, I mean, we care about the truth. And in Christianity, one of the great things about Christianity is this isn't just some religion, right? Full of just a bunch of proverbs. Like it's literally historical. Christianity is historical. And if you look at all of the early Christians, they became Christians understanding that I'm going to lose my life here, but I gain it in eternity. And in fact, mm-hmm. Jesus says that, and so many people don't know it. He says, he who desires to save his life, meaning you're really going to try and, and grab onto this life and you care about your affairs of this life. He who tries to save his life, he says, you'll lose it. But he who loses his life, in other words, sacrifices, you become a living sacrifice. Just as he sacrificed himself on the cross, we're to be a living sacrifice. We're to continually to deny ourselves of our own personal wants, gains, and desires. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. And so it's all inverted on its head. And so the reason you become a Christian is number one, to be forgiven of your sin, because sin is violating God's law. And when you violate God's law, you there's a punishment. There's a wage for it. The wages of sin is death. And that's not just a mere physical death. The Bible is very clear. It's appointed once for a man to die, and then comes the judgment. That death is what the Bible refers to in Revelation 21 as the second death, which is the lake of fire, which is hell. So if you violate God's law, you will go to his place of eternal punishment, his prison called hell. Nobody wants that, but nobody can pay the fee to get themselves out. Nobody wants to die of leprosy, but nobody can cleanse himself of their own leprosy. So what did God do? Well, he sent his son down into the world to fulfill the requirements that we can fulfill, and he died in our place. And so Jesus, we call him Savior. Because he saves you from your sin. He doesn't save you from your, I mean, uh, there, are, there are other things that as a consequence will happen, but people got it wrong. They think he saves me from my misery, saves me from my loneliness, saves me from my problems. Yes and no. You know, there are Christians that are lonely. There are Christians that are going through difficult times, you know, but they say, I don't do this alone. I do it with him. You know, Jesus says that, You'll never be alone. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so you attack those problems differently. But those are all peripheral issues. The primary issue is you are a human being that was created for a purpose, to know your creator. If you don't know your creator, you will not really know what it is to have peace here on earth. You are made to know him and to make him known. And if you're spending your life doing anything else, you're constantly missing the mark. It's like a cell phone, right? We're talking about phones. A smartphone was made, made to operate and function a certain way. If you try and use it outside of its original intent of the designer, it's probably going to be destructive towards it. Like cell phones, if we're talking on, we're sending text messages, we're looking things up on the web, what is it not for? It's not for using as a shovel in the backyard. It's not for using as a doorstop. What happens if I use it outside of its original intent and design? Well, if you use it outside of what the manufacturer intended you to use it for, like as a doorstop or as a shovel, uh, well, that's going to be destructive to it. It's going to be destructive. 
Well, in a very similar way, that's how we are as human beings. We are made, and there's a manufacturer, God, who designed us to operate a certain way. Basically, we operate on him. But if we go outside of that and we try and do things our own way, that's like taking our little life and throwing it under the doorstop. It's, it's, it's destructive. And so, so many people, you know, they, they know, you know, what it is to experience that destruction. And so God has come to restore us, though. And so that's what I would say to someone. Now, you're a guy who is physically tough. You're mentally tough. You could probably set your mind to do anything, even when you were younger. Like you said, you were an excellent baseball player. You're an excellent skateboarder. Uh, you had the sponsorship from Vans. You were competing. Really, even though you've lost interest, everything you've done, you've had success in. You've experienced, though, the letdown from those things, but you found this fulfillment in Christ. And again, there's listeners out there who completely get it. But then there's also listeners out there who are just like, why? Like, why would this guy do that? If you have the ability to go make a ton of money and to be famous and to, you know, be back in the seals and be the elite of the elite, why wouldn't you do that? Because like you mentioned, we all have a life and there's eternity. So what does eternity look like? I mean, if if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, what's eternity? Well, everyone is an eternal creature and we will spend eternity in one of two places, either heaven or hell. I don't think anyone wants to go to hell. But sometimes I think that people decide that they're willing to gamble or risk it and roll the dice here on, on earth in life. And uh, here's the deal. Hell is not going to be an enjoyable place. Jesus was pretty clear. It's a place where guilty people go, people that have violated God's law. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. It's a place of agony. It's the type of place that you expect Hitler to be child molesters and rapists that's not the type of company most people like to keep some people think they're going to be partying in hell if you're partying with the you know those types of people i guess that's a party for you right and so hell is a place of punishment and it was never designed for human beings that was not the original intent behind it it was for satan and all of his demons what's heaven heaven is perfect communion perfect relationship with the God who made you. And it's the greatest conceivable place. And so whatever it is in your mind that you think is the greatest conceivable place to be, it exceeds that. And so we're eternal creatures. We will spend eternity in one of two places, either heaven or hell. God did all the work to make that door open to us so that we could go to heaven. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. That's why he says, I am the door. But at the same time, God has placed the ball in our court and he gives us that opportunity because he doesn't want to force anybody to go to heaven. That would be miserable to be in, in a heaven and be in a place or where you're with a God that you want nothing to do with. And so if you don't want anything to do with God, he'll grant you your wish. C.S. Lewis, he says, the gates of hell are locked from the inside that those that go there, they choose it. They don't want anything to do with God. And so it really comes down to two forms of love. Does your love for God outweigh your love for sin and you'll part from it? 
or does your love for sin outweigh your love for God? And you say, I'm sticking with it. And he'll grant you your wish then. Amen. And let me ask you another question. A lot of people say this, well, why would God have created us and, and destined us to hell? Because I look at that and I think, I mean, I know the answer now as a Christian, that isn't ever been God's design. That has never been God's will. He loves us. And because he does love us, he sent Jesus. And that Jesus, like you said, is the door, is the way. Okay, well, God doesn't want anyone going to hell. In his word, he says that he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to everlasting life. Here's the thing. All right, Chad, we had a little bit of technical difficulties. Go ahead and continue. Right, so we're talking about why would God make human beings when he knows that, you know, ultimately, you know, a lot of them will wind up going to hell because they're going to choose to sin and, and choose to not turn to him. Well, it very well could be that because God made free creatures, he cannot force us to make certain decisions. And so he's decided to create us. The greatest gift that he's given us is freedom. And unfortunately, so many of us use that freedom instead of doing good, we do evil. And so we turn against God, we turn our back on God, we shake our fist up at God. And he has done, I think, above and beyond the call of duty, you know, where here we are, we've turned our back on him, we've sinned against him, we've violated his law. And so he sent his son down into the world on a rescue mission. He performed the greatest act of love, greater love has no one than this one that lays on his life for his friends. And so he laid out his life so that we could be rescued, but still people refuse it. People reject it. And so nobody could ever throw blame at the feet of God and saying, God, I'm going to hell because, you know, you made me live this way. Uh, at the end of it all, every man will be without excuse. Um, they are going to have to admit that they are going to hell because they turn their back on God and they never turn towards him, even though God threw a rescue line out there, a rescuer, his, his son to try and save them. And so C.S. Lewis, he says, the gates of hell are locked from the inside, that those that go there, they choose it. It's what their choice is. And it really comes down to two different forms of love. Does your love for God outweigh your love for sin? And you say, I'm ready to part from that, and I want that relationship with my maker? Or do you say, you know what, my love for sin outweighs my love for God, and I choose sin over him? Well, he made you a free creature, and he'll grant you whatever it is you know, that you wish. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And the thing is, if we had a disease, whether it's polio or tuberculosis or Mercer, we go to the doctor, the physician and get the drug that works for that disease. And people can come up with a lot of solutions, but there's only one that works and that's Jesus and for the eternal solution of our sin. So I really thank you very much, Chad, for talking about this. Like I said, a lot of people who listen are Christians, and they're excited to hear your stories. Uh, a lot of people, though, came in. They're also hearing a SEAL story. They had no idea about your, your faith. So this is definitely the most evangelistic episode we've had, but I really thank you for that because, honestly, that's what the whole thing is. To help each other grow, to come to know Christ, to glorify God, and to do this journey together. You know, people talk about the Great Commission. 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations. But it's not the great mission. It's not alone. It's a great co-mission. It's together. Right. So I really appreciate you, brother, being here. Your book covers your story. And I know we've gone long, and I'm okay with that. But I don't want to monopolize your time either. Anything else you want to hit on in your story before we get to where you are today? No, I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with that. So you get out of the seals and you, and that's a whole miracle in itself. If you want to touch on that, you can, or just start where you're at today. So once I got out, really it was while I was in, I already knew what the next mission was going to be. So in one sense, you know, I'm, I'm in the military. I'm, uh, you know, this frog man, this Navy seal, this sailor out there in the combat field. And I realized that the next mission is to be a soldier for Christ. And so you talked about the commission, the great commission. Well, if you think about it, Navy SEALs are given a commission, which is a duty and a task by definition. And usually that's to go after evil men and to sabotage their plans of committing evil, of doing wrong. And so we have weapons, we have tactics, we have a certain skill set in order to sabotage the plans of an enemy. And if we're successful, we stop men like suicide bombers. Well, in a very similar way, spiritually speaking, we are up against the ultimate terrorist, the ultimate suicide bomber, and I'm referring to Satan. He's the ultimate terrorist and ultimate suicide bomber because, just like any terrorist, his mode of operation is he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And like a suicide bomber, he understands he's going down. And a suicide bomber is never content with just going down. What do they want to do? They want to take out as many people with them as they possibly can in the process. Well, Satan knows he's going down. And if you read the back of the book, you'll know he's going down. And what is he trying to do? He's not content with just that. He wants to take out as many people with them as he possibly can in the process. And we need to make that personal. That's our family members, our friends, and our coworkers. But God has commissioned his special forces. That's every card-carrying Christian. And we're supposed to sabotage the plans of that terrorist. And how do we do that? We foil his plans by spreading a weaponized message. That message is the gospel, and it's weaponized because it's the power of God unto salvation. It sets captive people free. It, it causes people that are in the crosshairs of God's judgment and caught in the middle of this suicide bomb that's going off, the shrapnel fired out there by Satan, it covers them. It protects them. And so God is his special forces like you and I. He's given us the weapon, and we're to deliver it. And so that's what I'm doing today is I spend the majority of my time thinking about these issues and, and actually you know, going out there and communicating the gospel, whether that be in you know, very large group settings, sometimes speaking to thousands of people at once to, you know, the opportunities that I get in the airport or just going about daily living and meeting my fellow man. That's the purpose of life is to know God. And then if you have that check in the box, you have that box covered, then do what? Make him known. So it's to know God and make him known. That is our mission in life. So I'm buying into that, you know, hook, line, and sinker. 
I love those words by C.S. Lewis that I keep bringing up sabotage because he says, enemy occupied territory, that is what this world is, but Christianity is the story of how our rightful king has landed, you might say in disguise, and now he's calling us all to take part in his great campaign of sabotage. That campaign of sabotage is destroying the plans of the enemy of our soul. And so taking part in a campaign of sabotage really resonates with me, and I think that perhaps it would resonate with a lot of the listeners as well. Absolutely. And you bring, I want to touch back on a, a point you made earlier in our conversation and a comment you made on page three of your book. And it was regarding breaking the habits because you were just talking about sabotage. And it's not always an external force that sabotage. Sometimes whether it's a thought put in our head or our own negative thoughts, we self-sabotage. And on page three of the book, right off the bat, you said something. You said, I had, however, at this point in your life, I had, however, developed a habit of stopping myself. How would you talk to the listeners? How do you overcome that? Practically, there's so many people, myself included, where we've been passionate and excited and we had a goal and we start working towards it and then we quit. How does a guy like you handle that? I, I think that whatever it is that you start, just like if you're going to build a home, you know, Jesus makes a, a good point. He says, uh, you know, any builder before he starts his construction, first he'll count the cost. You, know, you don't want to start building a home and realize after you got the foundation laid and maybe you're starting to put up some of the walls that you don't got enough in you, you know, to afford to put the rest of this together. And so in advance, you know, once you have your target in mind, count the cost. Consider how bad do you really want this? Are you really willing to put in the effort and the work? Are you really that common man with that uncommon desire when it comes to this, to achieve it? You might want to go achieve something that I have no desire to do. And so you could do it, but I can't. You know, and the other way, you know, like I might have a desire to go and accomplish something that somebody else has no desire to do. And so it's all about that desire. That's going to be the fuel that really burns you, that really moves you forward. And then it's that ability to have that self-talk inside of your head. You have to have that self-dialogue, that conversation. And you never let that self-sabotage talk enter into your head. Like you just don't let it have the microphone. It doesn't get to spend much time there. Uh, so it comes in, it comes in, boom, you got this terrible thought. Right now, Chad Williams is working towards a goal. You hear negative self-talk. What's your response uh, to yourself? Yeah, sure. Well, this is what I think about. You know, it's been said that you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. And that's how those thoughts are, Right. I can't just say I'll never have a bad thought, you know, it'll fly over my head, but I'm not going to let it make its home. I'm not going to let it nest itself there. And so you just reverse the thought, you know, and instead of like, you know, thoughts of bitterness or wrath, you think about thoughts of like think thankfulness and, and charity, right? Like it's, it's all about that thought life, what it is that you're thinking about, set your mind on things above, not on things below. That's what the scripture tells you over and over. And the more time you spend in that place thinking about those things, meditating and focusing on the good, 
you saturate yourself with it. You so saturate yourself with the right type of thinking that it literally begins to change the way that you think naturally and the way that you look at things. And so the same way, if you're going to go to a, a fire pit or a barbecue and you go into one of those barbecue houses, you spend enough time in there and that aroma eventually begins to kind of rub off on you. It becomes a part mm-hmm. of you so that you could go somewhere else hours later and you go walking in the room and people get a whiff of you. They know where you've been, right? They do, but they don't. They smell something on you and they're like, where have you been, right? It's because it, it, it rubbed off on you. And so in a very similar way, that's how our, our thought life is, you know, for the better, for the worse. You know, it could be an aroma unto life or an aroma unto death, you know, but you ultimately are the controller, right? You control that airfield and you can't stop those birds from coasting over your head, but you can certainly keep them from nesting in there. And this is a great example how, again, people who are listening to this may be Christians. People who are listening to this may not be Christians yet. But the principles of success, all truth comes from God and they're the same. So even if you don't believe it, maybe it comes from God or there is a God. Um, I always think of the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Based on his writing, he said his parents were Christians, but he didn't believe. From the world's perspective, that's one of the greatest books ever written on communication. And when I read it personally, I like to read it once a year. It's a fantastic book. But as I read through it, I think it's, you know, one of the top 10, if not the top five, most ever printed books in the most languages. But every principle Dale Carnegie makes, you can tie back to scripture and verse. And that's whereas before I trusted Christ, that was one of the things that helped me believe is I could see that all truth really did come from God in that Bible. And what you were just saying, as a man think it, so is he. And there's another verse that says, you know, commit thy works unto the Lord and thy thoughts shall be established. And people listening out with depression or dealing with that kind of um, issue or anything, exactly what you said, Chad, just do it. Just forget the negative self-talk, forget the lies and do it. So if you're sitting there depressed or you're sitting there in a rut, but you know what you should be doing, go do it. And when you do those works and you commit yourself to doing them, then it literally changes your mindset and you desire that and you have joy and peace. So I'm loving what you're saying. I mean, it's, it's dead on. I think it's going to really help people and resonate with them. Well, one more question, if you don't mind, you okay with that? Yeah, I got time. Your mindset is definitely different than the average bear in the sense of you have that goal driven focus. You have that not quit mentality And it's to the extreme in a good way. When you were growing up, did you always feel like there was something special in your life? Or did you think, I'm just an average guy? What what kind of mindset did you grow up with? That's a good question. I think that I had a very optimistic mind. I almost had like the feeling like, you know, that, I was meant to do something special. And I think all of us are meant to do something, you know, special. And so maybe I I just never listened to that talk or those voices that say that you're just an ordinary guy. And there wasn't anything real extraordinary about me in terms of 
physical nature or ability. And I understood that as well. But I think I also kind of understood that it's basically the little Davids in life that take on the giants like Goliath. And so I, I did just kind of always have this feeling that I was meant for some type of greatness. And I never really felt like that greatness would necessarily come purely from my own efforts. I really felt like somewhere along the way, I had this just general understanding, this innate knowledge of God. And I felt like that God, you know, would see me through on those things. And so, I mean, that's all just psychological though, you know, that's just a psychological analysis on just how I was, you know. Yeah, I don't know. That's, but see, the thing is people are listening and how many of us have felt that and we know that there's something special planned. But just like you said earlier, misery loves company. Satan knows his fate and he wants to bring as many people down as he can. And he wants us to quit and he wants us to get discouraged. He wants us to have hope, no hope and to be in despair. So for the listeners, for them to know inside that there's something special, but then Sane tries to think, no, it's nothing special about you. Think about Alex. Think about like what Chad was saying, Alex versus Barth. You had a guy who everybody, even in the SEALs, kind of made fun of, right? That I made fun yeah. of it, gave him a hard time, said, you don't belong here. You're no good. And yet the genetically superior monster He's the one that quits, and Alex is the one that makes it because he never stopped. So, yeah. Well, Chad, I appreciate you, brother. If a listener wants to get a hold of you, if they have questions to ask, if they want to learn more, if they want to check out your book, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, I have a couple of different sites. One is for, like, the corporate side, like non-faith-based type speaking. It's kind of a long one, but it's memorable. It's Navy Seal chadwilliams.com so it's just name my full name chadwilliams.com and the other one is a faith-based site you know for christians to get a hold of me maybe to speak at like a church or a you know some type of event along those lines it's sealofchrist.com and then of course i'm on instagram it's the same title of my book is my handle on there seal of god and uh any one of those little social media platforms will point them in the right direction. Probably the places you can find me on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook. Excellent. And we'll put again, we'll put all of these in the show links in the show notes, the links so you can connect. Uh, and the last thing is what's your next big project. I remember talking to you about a crusade in May coming up. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the church that I go to, I go to the church, uh, it's called harvest and, the pastor that was speaking that night, Greg Laurie, March 14, 2007, the night that I heard that message about Naaman and heard the gospel and was radically changed. I'm a part of that church now. And one of the things that our church does is uh, we put on these big crusades, very similar to uh, like the Billy Graham style crusades that would happen at these stadiums. And so, I mean, we've gone to AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Texas, and literally packed that place out to the point where the fire marshal said, we can't take any more people. We're talking like close to 100 people. We've gone to stadiums all over the nation, even all over the world. We've been to Australia, New Zealand, um, all over. And so the next one that we got going on is coming up in Boise, Idaho. 
And so it's going to be May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And so if anyone lives in the area or has family family or friends that lives in the area, let them know. Uh, there's a big crusade coming to town. And so I'm, I'm, I've been pretty involved in helping out with that and doing some of the, the early work on the ground. I was just out in Boise last week. It's a totally free event, but it's not free to put on. And so we've been doing some fundraising to help get that going and just spreading the word on radio. I spoke in prison and in church out there as well. And so May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, it's going to be at an arena that was formerly known as the Taco Bell Arena. I say that just because that's what every person from Boise remembers it as, is the Taco Bell Arena. But now it's, it's called the Extra Mile. So at the Extra Mile Arena, May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And you can find out a lot more about that. You can put a show link for uh, harvestamerica.com. Awesome. We will do that, my friend. Well, Chad, as always, it's a pleasure. Next time you're in town, let's do dinner and watch some fights. And uh, you truly are a remarkable man of God. I'm thankful and proud and privileged to be your friend. I'm blessed, man. Thank you so much. Likewise. And to all of you listening, we love you. Have a great day. Go do something with your life that you will not regret later. And if you have any questions about Christ, you call us and we'll, we'll work you through it. Bye. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life.